This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to human rights activist and writer Anna Diamond. Anna was held for eight months for no reason whatsoever in one of the most brutal prisons in the world, Evin Prison in Iran. Anna's going to speak to us about that and explain how this all happened despite the fact she was completely innocent. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront or you can go to popularfront.co slash support. So Anna, let's go back to the very start. You ended up in a really bad situation in Iran. Uh, Take us back to the start. How did this all happen? So in the summer of 2014, uh, my family and I decided to visit Iran because my dad had been invited to the International Mahdaviyad Conference, which is kind of where all the scholars who focus on Abrahamic religions uh, come together, well, not all, but, you know, Iran-centric ones, and then they discuss their re- uh, latest research or findings or philosophies around the Messiah and, and um, Abrahamic religions. And so my dad actually is an Islamic scholar, um, but he is quite different from those that you see in the Islamic Republic. So, but at the time, there was no friction. So we went to Iran uh, in the July of 2014. But we went at different times. So my parents went first and I came second because I was coming from the US where I was studying, you know, a semester abroad. Um, You know, I was at a university then. Um, And when I arrived in Iran, interestingly, um, just immediately, they were really suspicious of where I was coming from. Uh, So I had a layover in Turkey. So, you know, they didn't know I was coming from the US. and they started asking if they could see my laptop and if I if they could look at my phone. And so I should notify, you know, a little bit of context. I hadn't been to Iran for 16 years. I was born in Iran, but we left Iran when I was four years old. Mm. Uh, I hadn't been to Iran for 16 years, so I couldn't speak Farsi. Uh, I could understand it, but I couldn't speak it. But then, you know, obviously when you look at me, I look quite, you know, I'm the quintessential Persian slash Middle Eastern uh, woman. Um, so I think the officers were a bit suspicious because I looked Iranian, but then I couldn't speak Farsi. Um, and yeah, so they pulled me aside and they, you know, they wanted to see my passports, not only the Iranian but one, but the also the European one. And um, and at that point, they just said, uh, "We can't find you in the population registry," so they couldn't admit me into the country give me an entrance uh, clearance. Uh, So I was in the airport the whole day. (laughs) Uh, At the end, they uh, seized my passports, my laptop and my phone as part of this undisclosed investigation. And they said that they would get back to me in a few weeks time. So that was the very, very first impression I had of the country. I thought, I mean, I hadn't been to Iran, as I said, for many years, so I didn't know how the country is run. So I I kind of thought maybe it's normal. but then we kind of went with it, and for the next uh, twelve or so months, uh, we were uh, continuously followed around 
we always didn't know that we were being followed around. And when I say we, I mean my parents and I. Um, and But then uh, we were also asked to attend these interrogations, which again, <laughs> at the time, I didn't know what they were about. Um, but all of it kind of led up to our formal arrest, which occurred in January 2016. Um, and so in hindsight, obviously, I see that there was a lot of paranoia in Iran and they probably, you know, they were suspicious of kind of dual nationals and foreign nationals because of the ongoing Iran nuclear deal talks. So in 2015, Iran and the West, so that would be Germany, uh, Russia, UK, US, and, and a, a few other countries, they kind of came together to sign the JCPOA. Um, and during that time, uh, the Iranian security apparatus was just very, very hostile towards anyone who was um, a foreigner or a dual national. Right. So what happened when they actually, you know, properly arrested and detained you? What, what were they saying? So as I said, they had asked us to attend interrogations in these safe houses across Tehran before January 2016. So the date of our arrest. Um, and when I would go to these interrogations, I mean, Jake, they were, it was so shady. I'm, I'm surprised I was so naive at the time. But so, for example, um, they would call us from a private number, tell us to come to this corner shop and that the owner of the corner shop would give us an address. Um, and then, you know, we would do what we were told because we were given the impression that if we kind of uh, cooperated with what they were saying, we would be eligible uh, to leave the country eventually. Um, and during those interrogations, um, my parents and I were separated, so I really didn't know what they were being asked. But I was specifically asked about my activities in the UK, um, if I knew Catherine Ashton. Um, I, I, I was involved in uh, UK youth politics at the time, so I had photos with, you know, individuals or, or politicians like, for example, David Cameron. And they were like, do you know David Cameron? And at the time, they didn't tell me that they had these photos. Um, and, and they were just building up a fabricated case against me. Um, and so I just thought, I, I thought it was just like a part of the whole um, familiarization process <laughs> um, where they want to know what I've been up to abroad. And I would just give them all that I had, you know, all the information. I mean, it does kind of sound naive, but at the same time, you hadn't done anything wrong. You're not a terrorist. You're not a spy. I guess, you know, as, as a young woman, you had no reason to think that they would be investigating you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned, but I was only 19. And so a person who's 19, who's never been to Iran, who isn't really involved in Middle Eastern affairs, uh, who, who has studied film studies and is just mainly involved in UK domestic youth politics and, you know, and literally just trying to network with people, not even trying to launch a political career or anything. So like, obviously I didn't know what was going on. And I certainly, as you said, I wasn't a spy. I hadn't committed any national security uh, crimes or anything like that. So I, I really didn't have a source, uh, a reason to be worried. Um, but eventually in January, 2016, uh, four days before, and I, and this is really, really interesting to me, Four days before 
the U.S. Obama administration paid Iran $1.7 billion um, in exchange of a few Iranian Americans. Four days before that, I was arrested. And so this gave me the impression, I mean, now it gives me the impression that we are treated like, literally like <laughs> supermarket products. So you give mm -hmm. one, you take one, you give one, you take one. Uh, and then that involves exchange of money, exchange of goods, exchange of assets. But at the time, again, I didn't know any of it. I did know that Jason Rezaian, uh, so an Iranian-American journalist for the Washington Post, um, I knew that he was in the headlines a lot. Uh, he had made a lot of... Um, so he was the, the Tehran Bureau editor for the Washington Post. And so he was kind of very well known. And then he had been arrested on espionage charges. So I was following his case, but I had no idea that something similar would happen to me because I was not a journalist and definitely not in the same calibre as uh, Rezaian. Mm. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so in January 2016, I was arrested on um, on charges that were not even disclosed to me at the time. I didn't know where I was up until the 35th day. Um, so they didn't tell me that I was in Evan prison, which is like very notorious for its mistreatment of political prisoners. And I mean, it's it's actually a ground where a lot of blood has been shed <laughs> during the past 60, 70 years. So even before the Islamic revolution. Um, and in my first uh, hearing, I was told that I was facing the charges of espionage, apostasy, um, and co host, uh, collaboration with the hostile government of England. Um, and so the espionage was for MI6, CIA, and Mossad. <laughs> All of it's them. like I was the I know I was like the super spy going around spying on all hugely important Iranian officials and just providing information to Mossad, CIA, MI6. Here you come, here it comes, take it. Um, so and and the way they justified it was that um, the UK was had been grooming me since I was 15. So um, so I had been in training for five years, four or five, four or five years. And so, yeah, so they, they, they really, I mean, to be fair, looking back, you know, I think even though they knew what they were doing was fabricated, I think they did put up, create a very impressive uh, case because they literally took multiple different aspects of my life and glued them together by force and created this super spy narrative like for example i'll just give you an example on my 18th birthday i went to a paintball session with my friends so you know you carry the plastic guns and you shoot each other with colors and whatever and we were wearing the paint paintball gear which is kind of heavy and because you have to protect yourself Anyway, so we took a lot of photos during the paintball uh, event and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, so the IRGC, they said that I had been trained by NATO and these were the photos from the NATO training. And I was just shocked. I was like, either these people are 
incredibly stupid or they are so smart that they are putting me through all of this just to, you know, uh, get more information. Because basically what ends up happening is that while you're trying to explain that it's not NATO, you were doing this and you were doing that, like out of all the things that you provide, they take new bits of information and then they use it against you again. It's a tech tactic for them. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember when, when I was arrested in Turkey, obviously, you know, not nowhere near as bad as or, or on the same scale as what happened to you, but like it's a similar tactic they were using. So, you know, we had a load of cash in like very small denominations because you're in Southeast Turkey, the war was on, often the electric was being turned off, so you can't just go to a cash point. So they were like, right, well, clearly you're paying Kurdish militants for I don't even know what. And I was like, what? Like, what? Like, why the fuck would we pay Kurdish militants, right? So then I was saying, well, well, like you guys, like Turkey itself has written a report saying that apparently the PKK makes millions each year from drug trafficking and whatever. So why the fuck would they need some random like white Western journalists to come and give them money, right? But then it's like, oh, you know about that. Are you involved? So like you said, it's like just a constant slippery slope, right? You just, once you're in, you're in. Absolutely. Yeah, so after I was released and I returned back to the UK in 2018 and then in 2019 I began like my activism work, um, I figured that a lot of, well, some of the former hostages and formerly um, detained individuals, you know, they gave these talks about how dumb the Iranian security officers are and, and the whole organization and the IRGC and how inept they are and incompetent because they confuse us to spies and whatnot. But I actually want to see the other side of it. I don't think they are stupid when they are doing these. I think they are very sophisticated and they do it with incredible calculation. You know, I think it would be easy for us to say they are just very foolish. They don't know who's a spy. They don't know, you know, but I, I actually think they, I mean, they 100% do it intentionally. It of brings course. them money. It brings them uh, notoriety. Um, it brings them incredible media attention. So, for example, with the Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe's case, an Iranian-British charity worker who's been arrested in Iran for the past five years, for example, you know, that her case alone has garnered Iran worth a media attention that is worth millions and they've they've got it for free now you know some might argue that but that's negative publicity listen Iran doesn't want good publicity in the western media like they don't care okay what yeah. they want exactly like what they want is they they want to be vilified by the west so that they can vilify the West in their own media and then they can create this soft war, cold war tactics where they can legitimize and justify their own territorial expansion in the Middle East. They can uh, justify why they keep arresting dual nationals. They can keep justifying why they you know, send um, drones to uh, American military sites in Iraq. So like, it gives them all these excuses but then like it's very disappointing when former detainees come and say oh they're just dumb no they're not dumb they know what they're doing yeah definitely with any with any authoritarian regime like that they're not stupid they know like 
they know that arresting journalists is like they know that the journalists are not gonna like do anything other than report on what's going on but that's what they want they want to create this fear so that anyone else that goes there says well fuck that we better not because if we report on the war crimes they're actually doing then we'll go to prison and it will be hell like they, like you said it's very calculated anyone that thinks they're stupid is wrong i think it's it's all a part of their plan to like limit information and basically just keep getting away with war crimes i think um you said like you, you kind of you know you you got pulled in you got questioned um what happened at the moment when you realized like right i'm actually going to prison now like how did that all play out oh my god <laughs> I still get goosebumps when I think of that day, Jake. I mean, I laugh about it because humor is a great coping mechanism. But in reality, it was incredibly traumatizing. Mm. Um, so I remember, so at the time before I was arrested, I was doing little volunteer works with the UN and with some uh, local newspapers, just because I thought, you know, if I'm going to be in Iran under a travel ban, I might as well use my time wisely and like get to know the country or maybe learn the language. Um, so on that very day when I was arrested, 12th of January, 2016, I was going to my internship place, which was the FAO. So the Food, Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. And, um, and I remember on that day, I woke up quite early. You know, I, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm just going to uh, paint my nails red because I was feeling that way um, on that day. And so I head out. It was like 7.30 a.m. Um, and I mentioned the nail polish because I'm going to return to it. Mm. Um, I, I head out and walk toward my local um, tube station, metro station. And next thing I know, a car pulls in front of me, uh, like a van. And a woman comes out. And by the way, I, I had my headphones on and I was listening to some hip hop music. I don't know. Uh, like a rap music or something. I was just vibing my way through um, life in Tehran. And then this lady pops out. She pulls out my headphones and I'm like, excuse me, do I know you? Um, and she says, you need to come with us. And like, I, I thought maybe she was asking for directions. And anyway, long story short, um, next thing I know, four or five people come out. One of them has a camera. One of them has a freaking gun. Like that alone, just I was I was <laughs> I was going through this fight flight freeze mode because I didn't know if I should fight run away or just like you know let it be what it is and just go with them. Um, but eventually, I ended up in the van, and uh, I remember they pressed my head between my knees, and I think at that point I was just I I knew something was terribly wrong because. Um, there was no reason for that kind of hostility in the first few minutes um, if, if there isn't, you know, a, a reason for worry. Uh, and then they took me to the court. Um, uh, and unlike other um, famous dual national cases, I was actually taken to the special clerical court because um, my father, as I mentioned, is an Islamic scholar and my grandfather was also a cleric. So I come from a family of quite high profile clerics um, and which also kind of made my case quite difficult because the IRGC saw me as one of their own um, mm -hmm. and 
and and they thought that I was portraying the country by like being subversive and like you know doing things that they didn't approve um but I was in reality I was never one of their own because I had I like I was brought up in the west I didn't know Farsi like you know I wasn't involved in any of their activities but because my grandfather was but you're, you're Iranian but you're British as well right it's you know it's like you said dual national it's you know you're as much British as you are Iranian in the eyes of the law anyway but they just well they didn't care they didn't they disregarded it well, yeah, because Iran doesn't recognize dual nationality. Right. Um, I mean, that that's what they say, but actually they recognize it when it's of benefit to them and then they don't recognize it when it's not of benefit to them. Mm. So it's kind of like at their discretion when they want to recognize it. I mean, there are plenty of Iranian um, ministers or special advisors whose children have dual nationalities, who themselves have dual nationality, and they just go on about their life. But then the minute you are arrested as a national security threat, then suddenly they don't recognize your dual nationality because they know that they would be held accountable if something happened to you. So it's just an easy way for them to evade responsibility. Um, but as I was saying earlier, so a bit of context, um, my grandfather um, was one of... <laughs> uh, it's actually quite difficult to ad admit this because I think... Um, it puts me on a quite sensitive spot where some think that I've benefited from the system I'm uh, currently criticizing. <laughs> but I just really want to clarify that I have never benefited from anything. And if anything at all, it has hurt me more than it probably would have had I not been uh, the granddaughter of an Ayatollah. But anyway, so my grandfather was one of the uh, leading figures that led to the Islamic Revolution. And he was alongside uh, Hashemi Rafsanjani and um, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei. Like he, he was the representative of uh, the supreme leader uh, for nearly 40 years uh, in the northwestern part of Iran. So he, you know, he was a very prominent figure. And so when I was in Iran... Uh, whenever I would go to his house or whenever I was, you know, around his circles, I had to wear a chador. Mm. So anyway, so, you know, when I was tried at the special clerical court, they saw me as like this infiltrator, essentially. Um, and I mentioned my nail polish earlier on because in Islam, um, nail polish is haram. Mm. And so I was there with my chador and me looking like the, you know, the most perfect hijabi, uh, you see, uh, aligning woman who like the attire was just so perfect to kind of camouflage amongst them. Um, but then my red nails popped out. Um, and I remember the officers were like constantly looking at my nails and I was just scraping away the color. So like aggressively, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, I need like... to get this off before I go, you know, before I'm, I'm seen by the prosecutor because they will just judge me for it straight mm. out. Like no doubt. Jesus Christ. Um, Something so minor really, you know what I mean? But at the same time, not so much over there. So, so what happened next? You were then, what, you were taken straight to court? They put you in a jail or what? Yeah, so they took me to the court. Um, I saw the prosecutor, one of them, um, his, his Hojat al-Islam Zanjani. And then after him, I saw Hojat al-Islam Abdullahi. Abdullahi is the representative of Ibrahim Raisi. 
Raisi is um, is the chief justice of Iran, so he's a very big person, like a big deal. Uh, and he actually ran against um, Rouhani, President Rouhani, in 2017 elections as well. So it was quite ironic for me to see him running as president, knowing that he had tried to sentence me to death a year before Jesus. Uh, before that. Um, but anyway, so in 20, January 2016, uh, I saw the prosecutors. They asked me if I was a spy. I said, no, I'm not. Um, and that was it. They said, okay, well... As long as you collaborate with us and help us figure out the truth, you're safe. And 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 I said, okay, well, where do I go? Where what do we do? And they just said, well, you'll see. Anyway, they took me downstairs and they put me in a car. They didn't tell me what they were doing, um, and I thought I was going home. But then the lady who initially, um, the, the lady that early that morning had tried to you know drag me into the van she sat next next to me and she said we're going uh, to the hotel um and I just said okay well uh whatever that may be and they put blindfolds on uh, on me and again pressed my head between my knees and we drew uh we drove to Evan prison and um later on I figured that they call Evan uh, Hotel Evin, so uh, Evin yes. Hotel, and they call and they call inmates mehmun, um, so guests. Fuck. So inmates are guests, and 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 the detention center is a hotel. That's very dark. Um, it it is very dark, yeah. And and every single time when I was trying to you know uh, ask for help when I was in in the solitary confinement or during interrogations. They were always like, but you're our guest. We're trying to serve you. We're trying to help you. Mm. Um, you know, so there was a definitely, yeah, there's definitely a lot of thought given to it. Um, but so I was taken to, to a solitary confinement unit, which is run by the IRGC. Um, it's different from the 209 solitary section, which is run by Iran's Ministry of Intelligence. Um, and I have to clarify that because there is a huge distinction between the two. So Iran's Minister of Intelligence is actually the one who should be in charge of Iran's national security. Um, but the IRGC, uh, you know, uh, a small group that started as an insignificant branch of the Iranian armed forces in 1979, has now gained so much traction and influence that they are actually running their own operations. Um, and that's why I call it a deep state because the IRGC is essentially running everything. Um, but people just don't want to see what's in plain sight. And then they want to pretend that there are still reformists in place. And then you have the hardliners and you have conservatives and you have progressives. No, they're all the same mm -hmm. because IRGC is running the show and you're just the audience. Um, but yeah, so I was taken to the solitary confinement um, I was in solitary confinement for the next 200 days and I was in complete isolation. Um, I had no contact with the outside world whatsoever. I didn't have access to a lawyer or to a medical professional, despite the fact that I fainted multiple times in the solitary cell. Uh, I developed a, a severe cardiac arrhythmia. Like my heartbeat would go up to like 300. And obviously at the time I couldn't count it, but I carried it with me home. It was like an Iranian souvenir. 
I carried her when I returned to the UK. So whenever I would end up in A&E, they would, you know, they would see that my heart is 300, 350 beats per minute, be, be, beats per minute. And, and, you know, that's, that's like danger threshold. Um, but anyway, so I didn't have access to any of that. I would be interrogated up to like um, 12 hours a day, if not more. Um, and yeah, so during those eight months, uh, things got quite, uh, dark and then sometimes things got positive and, you know, you were seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but it was, it was really just a roller coaster of, of, of horrendous terror. And I will never be able to forgive people that want to either silence people who've gone through that or to, you know, enter the process of victor blaming. Mm. Um, and I say that because, you know, in our conversation before, you asked me, how did you become a dissident? And I, and I mentioned that I don't know if I would consider myself a dissident. And I say that, and I said that because the minute you say you're a dissident, um, people, some people in Washington or in Westminster or in Brussels, they automatically want to silence you. Like they don't want to hear it um, because they think that you are making their job difficult. Mm. They're so fixated on talking about the revival of the JCPOA. Yes, we need to be able to get Iran back to the negotiations table. Um, and usually you hear that from people who have either not lived in Iran yeah. or Iranian or so-called Iranian analysts that have lived in the West for the past like 10, 20 years and don't have any recent first-hand experience of Iran. But when you actually speak with people who have been in Iran or lived in Iran or have, you know, some sort of imprisonment experience, they will tell you the Iranians are hungry for justice and for human rights. Like you, human rights has become this buzzword and it's been watered down because nobody uh, who actually has the power to do something in reality gives a shit. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but like, when you are constantly talking about entering Iran nuclear deal because they are uh, involved in nuclear proliferation, why do you care about nuclear prolifer proliferation if you do not care about human rights? Like they go hand in hand. You can't dismiss the other and focus on the on on the other one. I I, I agree completely, and I'm, I I honestly get really sick of hearing these kind of think tank. Like, oh, well, if we just normalize ties with blah, 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 it completely removes the human element to it or, or any political think tank, to be honest. It's like whilst people are rotting in the dungeons, getting raped, getting abused, getting sent to prison for nothing, whilst they're all being oppressed, it's like then you shouldn't be talking about anything else yet. Get that out of the way first. When that stops, then you can do other things. But of course, that's that's not how the world works. You know, the West has this kind of like face of like, oh, we respect human rights. But, you know, I mean, do they? I mean, the EU is saying about China, oh, it's terrible about the Uyghurs. And then a week later, they just rush through a trade deal with the same country that they're criticizing for doing that. It's like it's the same all over the world, I think. And I think going to prison under like an authoritarian regime and then being involved with the think tanks and the diplomats, as you will have to be, 
I think like what you're saying really rings true. It's like, do they actually give a shit about the human rights? I don't know if they do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really disheartening to see because, I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but I know that there are people who have personal incentives in getting Iran sign another JCPOA or getting Iran and the US uh, around the same table. They want to make it seem like it's about um, protecting the world from another nuclear war. Um, and I'm sure there are actually genuine people who are worried about that. But then the ones that talk the loudest <laughs> actually have very, very, very important personal incentives. Um, when I was living in Iran, I saw people who were involved with the IRGC because, as I said, they operate like a mafia, right? Mm. So if you want to have a successful business, at some point in line, you will have to collaborate with the IRGC. Like, there is no way they will allow you to import um, Maseratis and Bentleys and, and expensive cars without giving them a huge percentage. Like, they will not allow you to do that. Um, there is no way that you will be able to build a 20-floor, 20-whatever-floor uh, skyscraper in the middle of Tehran without getting an authorization from the IRGC. People want to claim otherwise, but I have seen it, and the yeah. entire country of Iran knows this. It is called party bazi. Like there is an actual expression term for it. But but people who are like, oh, JCPOA, let's protect innocent Iranians and also our own interests. Listen, like I respect that, but there is so much more to it than just signing another deal that is purely transactional. You need to, we need to set preconditions. And I don't think we should give any concessions to the IRGC. And if you've noticed, I specifically talk about IRGC because there are plenty of great and genuine people in Iran that of want course, to see yeah. their country thrive, right? So they, they really want to see the country thrive. But unfortunately, IRGC doesn't want the, the profits of the country to be handed out to, to the general population or to foreigners. So it's, I think it's just, you know, some people are naive and ignorant to it and others just blatantly close their eyes from it yeah well it's very easy to do when people are actually not faced with the realities of what's going on whether that be in the trenches or actually in the country it's very easy for people in dc and london to say this this and this having never been anywhere near the threat of what that country is actually bringing upon people um i just want to talk a little bit about evan prison more because it's i think anyone that has done any research on Iran like knows about this place it's very notorious um if, if you don't mind like maybe you could explain what it was like just day to day there like how were things for you there what were the conditions like did you get to even speak to any other prisoners or was it just solitary the whole time like maybe give us an idea of what it was like there sure so um Evan prison is a huge compound is the first thing I want to say so it's not just a single building um, it is absolutely massive and it's located in the north part of Tehran, um, in like mountainous area. Um, and it's actually quite funny because the minute you step out of Evan prison and like the front yard of it, you are like met by the, the sounds of this living and colorful and vibrant city. 
So like all of that torture and horrendous mistreatment is going on while everyone else is like doing whatever they would do on their daily life. Like it's it's actually like so crazy that they are happening simultaneously right next to each other. But anyway, so inside Evan Prison, um, the two A solitary units, um, they are small cells. I was um, I was rotated between multiple cells, but the the initial one I was placed in was so small that when I lay down, my head touched one wall and my feet touched the other wall, and I had to like bend my knees a little bit. Um, you're not you're not tall. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I'm like five foot seven. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm quite average. Um, so it, it was it was extremely small. I mean, some people have described it as like coffin-like. Uh, I think it was definitely bigger than a coffin. But if you're claustrophobic, you will legitimately have a stroke or die or something. Like, it is scary. Um, and I was there in January. Uh, so the you know, I was taken in. And the temperatures were freezing jake like i was i was i kept asking for blankets for jacket for anything uh, because they take everything from you and you're supposed to wear these prison clothes um and they just kept telling me you're only allowed to get three blankets and the blankets are just like very thin army rugs well not rugs but like the the kind of rough made of rough material yeah it's like um, hair almost right yeah exactly i think it's quite common in in like in in Iran or Turkey or or that yeah, region so, prisons. I know them blankets yeah. and like the one they gave us had like the Ottoman seal on it and it was like made of hair basically. I was like, oh for fuck's sake, like they can't even give you a blanket that's decent. <laughs> exactly. So even the blanket is not comfortable. Like yeah. there is nothing that you can find comfort in. Um and I I think it was like 10 or 15 days into it that I was literally shivering so hard. And I couldn't eat anything. Whatever food they gave me, I literally like threw it up. Like everything would just come back up. Um, and so this lady, one of the guards, female guards, who was like basically running the solitary cells and like giving food to people or whatnot, like she ended up giving me her own coat because she was like, this girl is going to die of hypothermia or some shit because it was so bad. Um, and so I, I like, I say that because I want to highlight the fact that even amidst all this, like inhumanity and like this horrible negligence and torture and, uh, just like being so cruel towards an, one another, there was still glimpses of light and hope, like the single active small kindness that this female guard did toward me. Like I will always remember it because it was exactly what I needed at that moment um, and even though she's complicit, she's, you know, part of uh, a, a, a literally an organization that runs extrajudicial killings and, and whatnot, like I still recognize her act of kindness. Um, but also that gives you an image of how rough the circumstances were, because um, the fact that she gave me her coat was like such a big highlight of the whole month that I, I just kept talking about it to every single person that asked me about the Evan conditions. Mm -hmm. But um, so they give you food, they give you like breakfast, lunch and dinner, which usually is like a very grim lentil soup, um, which doesn't have any lentils. It's just gray water. 
Um, and so they would also give you like boiled um, or steamed potatoes. Like, so they would give you food um, unless they wanted to punish you. Um, at that point, they wouldn't give you food. Uh, I remember for two days that they, they didn't give me water, um, which was like when they didn't give me water, I was freaking out because my livelihood and lifeline literally depends on what they give me. So there is nothing else that you could eat, not even the blanket. Mm -hmm. So, so like you see, you really see the end of desperation. Um, you end up contemplating suicide. You have uh, huge, you know, feelings of guilt. Um, particularly, I had because I was arrested with my parents. So I was constantly like I was in this excruciating pain of knowing that I may have caused them this problem, which of course wasn't true. But at the time, I, I was unaware of it. I was just very naive. Um, and then when they would take you to the interrogation, you would have to put a blindfold on. Um, and if you're a female, you would wear a chador. So you have to put magnet, like a headscarf, and then you have to put a chador on top of it. And then they take you um, to interrogation cells, which is kind of you have to walk out of the solitary units, um, probably 100 stairs down. It's literally underneath the ground um, where they interrogate you. And like while you're taking the steps down, I remember the first time when I went there, I was like, I, I was expecting the worst. I thought I would get my nails pulled out. I would get iron. Like I just, I like all these things went through my head because we were literally going beneath the ground where the sun does not shine. Mm. Um, and uh, when you're interrogated, you're sat against a wall. Um, so you don't see your interrogators. You just hear them. and. Um, and there are two, at least two interrogators. One usually plays the good cop and one usually plays the bad cop. So the good cop is, oh, we want to help you. You can have dinner with us tonight. You can go home tonight. You can save your father's life tonight, yada, yada, yada. And the bad cop is the one that says, I'm going to kill you tonight if you don't <laughs> do what I tell you to do. And, um, and they, you know, he would play recordings of my mom crying or my dad mm, screaming. And yeah, and, and they would say that for every answer you're not giving me, um, we'll be, you know, torturing your mom or we'll be pulling your dad's teeth. Um, and so, like, there was a lot of psychological torture involved. Um, and I think also it's important to highlight that when you are in that sort of an unhealthy environment, to say the very least, um, for a prolonged period of time, I think you really lose touch of who you are and like what your identity is made of and your memories and your characteristics and your knowledge of yourself becomes so malleable and and so easily manipulated um so i distinctly remember that i was told they had photos of me with you know meeting the head of mi6 and mossad 
Um, and they convinced me that I had met with the head of Mossad um, to a point where I actually started thinking, did I meet the head of Mossad? Like it was so, I know. And, 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 you know, people, sometimes when I say this, like some, some people think that, oh, that's just absurd, but actually it's not absurd because it's like, if you run a social experiment and you put a human in a, in a singular solitary cell for eight months and every single day I repeat to them that they are a spy to CIA, for example, um, or that, you know, rice is red you know, the food rice is red rather than white. By the end of it, like easily, I could say many would consider that rice may be red. Like, okay, maybe they're not convinced of it, but they will consider it. Now, I don't know if I'm explaining it clearly, clear enough, but for example, they would ask me the color of yogurt. And I would say, well, yogurt is white. And he would say, no, yogurt is brown you've forgotten what yogurt looks like. Um, like it's just, it literally messes up with your whole thought process. And, and that's just the very basics of it. So when you come down to what did you do when you were studying abroad in the US? And I would say I was studying at the University of California and they would repeat to me every single day for 12 hours that no, you were in a Virginia Langley meeting with CIA officers, like by the fifth month in my head, I was like, fuck, maybe I met someone, you know? So the, the mental element of it, the psychological element of it is so severe and so destructive that I want everyone to know that psychological torture exists and it's real and it's just as potent and serious as physical torture. I don't want to do disservice to people, of, I mean, or like disrespect to people who have gone through physical torture because, you know, my dad went through it and I know that it's absolutely horrendous. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that you shouldn't... Um, think that psychological torture is any less serious mm. Um, mm. because it, it like it, it it completely messes up with everything you believe in and you think is right and just to add like some people think that once you come back everything returns back to normal but actually there is no normal like you are you have severe trust issues you suffer from PTSD like to this very day I keep away from Iranians like, even if they're not even, you know, even if they don't live in Iran, even if they're third culture kids like myself, I just don't want to talk to them because I'm so scared that I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe they work with IRGC and maybe they're spying on the diaspora communities. Like, so the paranoia is, is, is severe. And like, I have to do, I don't know, maybe years of unlearning because it's, I'm not unlearning, but like, dismantling of of this feeling that i've i've been um put through yeah it's it's like they're trying to send you mad right and when when that happens you can admit to anything i mean you even see uh, american police do it they're very not not maybe not on the same kind of level as in like playing 
you know, audio of your parents being talked to or whatever. But the mind games, they do the same. They're like, you know, convincing someone, trying to get them to confess. And it's like, if you end up doubting yourself, well, that opens up the gates to anything, right? Like you could, you could say, yeah, I am a spy. And then they're kind of vindicating what they've been doing to you. I think the silver lining in my um, experience or my ordeal was that in the middle, so in March, three months after my arrest, um, it was the Iranian Nowruz, so the Persian New Year. Mm. And uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, my interrogators decided to send me to the public ward um, for the duration of the New Year. I'm assuming because they wouldn't be working, and so there was no point in me being in solitary confinement, not being interrogated. Um, so they sent me to the woman's ward where I met other political prisoners. Um, namely, you know, Nargis Mohammadi, who is a very famous uh, political activist. Uh, she found a human rights organization with Shirin Abadi, who then went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003. Um, I met with Atana Fargadani, who is a very prolific uh, writer and, and an artist. Like, I was surrounded by this great... Uh, atmosphere of intellect and humility and courage mm. um and i think that gave me a new level of strength that whatever it may be that comes my way like i know so many women and and women of of much higher prestige and you know uh reputation and greatness have gone through it before me and I failed to mention early on, but like, so in May, again, I'm like jumping around in the timeline because my, my brain is like, when I, when I review the memories, it's like, it jumps from one uh, point to another. But like in May, after I was transferred back from solitary, I mean, from the public board solitary confinement, uh, in May, I was sentenced to death. But back in March, I didn't know that I had been sentenced to death. So when I told these women in the public ward that, you know, I was facing espionage, apostasy, um, collaboration with hostile government of England, they asked me, how long um, do I think I will be sentenced to? And I said, I have no idea. Like, I don't think I haven't done anything. So like, why should they sentence me? To anything, and I remember there were a few um, members of, um, well, alleged members, I should say, of MAK, so People's Mujahideen group, or I mean, I don't know the exact name, but basically they're like a band um, uh, dissident slash militia group. I really don't know because, like, the information of that of them is just very, uh, it's limited, and then. Not, it's not all verified so anyway but like allegedly mak members um and i remember one of them told me that listen there is no way you can get out of that without at least 10 years mm. um and and so she told me that you know her father her brothers all of them had been executed um she had been given 15 years of of prison she had never seen uh, her daughters graduate or or when they got married she wasn't in the wedding ceremony she missed everyone's funeral like she was just in that prison for 15 years 
and she didn't know for how long she was going to be there. Um, and then there were plenty of others. You know, you had Bahari Hedayat who led the 2009 Green Movement, um, the, the, the youth part of the Green Movement. She had been sentenced to eight, nine years um, simply for being a student activist and, uh, and organizing 2009 uh, youth engagement where people wanted to know what the hell happened with their votes when they voted for Musavi and suddenly Ahmadinejad was sworn in for a second term. Um, I mean, it was, I don't know if you remember that part, but it was called uh, the 2009 Green Movement in Iran. Yeah, it yeah. was quite huge, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so they taught me that no matter what I am told in solitary confinement, I need to stay confident in myself and in what I know to be true. Mm. And so they told me, if you know something isn't true, don't let that truth slip away because they are questioning you. Mm. And so when by the end of March, they suddenly took me back to solitary confinement, I was fulfilled. Like I was literally full of wisdom that I had been given by these incredible woman um and after that like no matter how much the IRGC tried to force me into a false confession or or when they said listen like if you do not say this thing like you will be hanged um I just thought it's better I mean I know this sounds very like uh <laughs> maybe uh banal or like corny but like I thought it's better to die anonymously than to die for something you haven't done. Like for me, it was just so absurd that I would say I'm a spy and they wouldn't kill me. No, no, ab absolutely. It's like, you know, when an authoritarian regime calls you a terrorist and you know you're not one, it's infuriating. And I, you know, I, I agree. It's like you should never just agree just to make it easier. Like whilst, you know, it might sound to you corny, I don't think it does at all. It's like, it's better to die you know, stating your innocence than to fold and then be killed anyway, right? Yeah, well, I said die anonymous. What I meant by anonymous is that not as someone known to have, like, committed a national security thing or, like, portrayed her second country and whatnot. Like, I preferred to that, that this, this thing would be wrapped up without anyone questioning my innocence. I rather just kind of let them do what they want to do instead of me partaking in it and doing um, what they are forcing me to do, which is like a false confession. Um, but of course, I do also acknowledge that had I not been moved to the woman's ward, um, things could have actually had a very different turn. So I think it's, yeah, I, I just, I, I just want to, you know, address <laughs> just how amazing the women there were and are. Um, and I think for the most part, they inspire me to do what I'm doing today, even though, of course, they were from all sides of the political spectrum. And, and I didn't agree with most of them when it came to political views. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are not like an absolutely amazing, um, amazingly inspiring human beings because they believe in something and they stand by it 
Um, and they believe in it because they think it is going to do greater good for the greater number of people. Uh, now, you could argue that <laughs> for the Islamic Republic too, I suppose, or the IRGC, but actually IRGC knows that what they're doing is not for the greater good of greater people. Like They know what they're doing is for their own good rather than for the population. It doesn't take an, a, a genius to see that the country of Iran is is literally dying slowly. Like they see it and they still continue doing what they've done for the past 40 years. Yeah, definitely. It's beyond politics when stuff like that is happening. It's, you know, people will throw this kind of weird like political ball around like, oh yeah, well, Iran is doing this, but what about America? It's like, yeah, fuck America as well. Like, it's not about that. It's about humanity. Like when you're doing stuff like that, like murdering your own citizens and oppressing them, they're not doing it for anyone other than, you know, the people that are, are ruling. It's just, I don't know, I, I don't think you can even question that. Um, what, what, like, what was it like finding out, like, yeah, they want to kill you, like, they're sentencing to, you to death? Um, before I answer that question, I just want to say that, Jake, you know, you can be critical of the US and also be critical of Iran. Like, it doesn't, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But people are so so wrapped up in their own pathetic political ideology that yeah. they don't realize that you know what i mean it's like it's it's quite similar to you know for example when i sometimes tweet or or you know make media interviews where i say iran is committing human rights crimes then people say oh what about u.s sanctions then do you think they don't kill people and it's like you know, I'm not advocating for sanctions. I don't agree with the sanction policy, you know, Trump's maximum pressure. I don't think it does good for Iran because, as I said, I saw what it's like. And the IRGC actually thrives under sanctions because they have a monopoly over Iran's every single economic sector, market sector. Like they rule everything. And I think the reason why they started ar arresting and this crackdown of dual and foreign nationals at the height of JCPOA in 2015 was precisely because they didn't want foreigners in the country. Like they do not want you to come and stand and live beside them. They do not want a JCPOA where foreigners come and invest in the country. For 40 years, Iran has been under some sort of sanctions right? The people don't want sanctions. And, and, you know, you could argue that the officials also do not want sanctions. But you cannot dispute the fact that they are thriving, because they have figured out ways for money laundering, they have figured out ways um, for their own cr criminal cir uh, circles and networks. And they, they literally like they do not have to answer to anyone when it comes to market regulations, because they, they run their whole, like they, they're in charge of the territory. Whereas if you start JCPOA and then you have foreign, foreign delegations come in and then you have, you know, huge companies like McDonald's, Apple, or all of these, you know, Western uh, firms entering Iranian market, that means that the IRGC and their businesses are going to get a smaller profit margin because they, they can't do their own thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's it's really not that hard to detect. And, and people, like, I think, of course, like, they do not want sanctions because 
yes, they can't get oil, oil revenue. They can't, you know, they, they can't participate in the international market as much as they would definitely want to. But on the other hand, they are doing their thing as it is now. And if you go to Tehran, if you go to north of Tehran, if you go to, um, you know, Sadat Abad, Tadrish, or like these wealthy neighborhoods in Tehran, like they are, it's, <laughs> there are millionaires. Like there are some people who live in the clouds, in cloud nine. And then you come to Southern Tehran and, and you have literally homeless people not knowing what to do with their lives. Iran is not a poor country, but the majority of the money is is circulating within the hands of like one, two, three, four, five percent of the people who are closely affiliated with the IRGC. Yeah, and it's been proven that when you put sanctions on a despotic country, it just makes the black market thrive as well. And, you know, if a country is despotic, then they don't really give a shit about their people. So they're just going to carry on looking after themselves. Meanwhile, the people end up in a worse situation. The governments just carry on consolidating their money and power. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really I'm not really one that understands the idea of like, oh, we put sanctions on them. Like, so what? You know, they're already rogue. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not that I want one country to bully everybody, but that's the reality of the world. And, it, you know, that's how it's happening. Um, tell me then about uh, back to the, uh, the the situation where you know you found out you, you were sentenced to death. They wanted to literally murder you. Like, what the fuck was that like? That must have been horrible. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, it was quite, um, I think, eye opening because at that point I really understood that the country is. Um, at the time, I thought the country was just in shambles. But now I think they did that because they wanted to send out a shockwave. And for my relatives, particularly my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, being a powerful figure that he was, um, for them to do something. So as you know, when I was going through this ordeal, my case was not publicized. And that happened for a very, very particular reason. So my lawyer, who was appointed by the court um, and also the court staff and those uh, intelligence officers that were supposedly part of um, the so-called entourage of my grandfather or, you know, his um, security um, personnel, they all said that if your case or my case um, is publicized, it will be very bad for the image of the IRGC and the Islamic Republic. To say that a family member of someone who is part of the Islamic Republic has been convicted of spying for MI6 and all of those, like it will just send out waves and people will start speaking about how um, the, the ruling elite has turned against its own basically. Or like, um, yeah, so, and I also, because I was arrested with my parents, I personally couldn't publicize it because I was in, the, in prison. My parents were in prison. And as you know, for any public campaign, um, in order to you know, campaign for someone's release, you need a very trust, trustworthy and, and consistent person who's running the campaign. And we like, didn't have that because we were all arrested. Mm. Um, so when in May uh, 2016, uh, in my hearing, one of my prosecutors, Nostrad Abadi, 
he said that we will be carrying out. Um, so my ver their verdict was that I, uh, I I had been found guilty and that I was going to be sentenced to death. Um, like my first reaction was, but I want to go back to London and finish my studies. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I remember, and I remember Nasrat Abadi was like, the only place you will be going to is Jannat, which means heaven. Wow. Um, and I said, like, I, and, and I just, I remember I was just, I, I just froze and I kept repeating like, but my studies, but I'm just a student, but I'm just like 19, 20, you know? And, and then I was taken back to Evan. Um, and I remember like I was just in this complete state of numbness, Jake. Like I didn't feel anything. I didn't, I couldn't think of anything. Um, I wasn't numb to like to the circumstances as much as I was numb to how I had like ended up there because I, I was so aware that there must've been a misunderstanding or that I was made out to be this fall guy for something that I didn't know I had become a part of. Um, so I was just in, in my small cell, I was just trying to calculate what the hell went wrong. Um, and I remember I was then transferred to an even smaller cell and they told me that um, I have uh, a few days to like think about my actions. And if I want to repent, um, I can like knock on the, on, on, on the door and ask for the female guard to give me pen and paper and, like I still have a chance to um, to tell them the truth and and save my life. Jesus. Um, and in the meantime, my mother and my grandfather and like my family, uh, excluding my dad because he was still in detention, they were all trying to figure out how to get me out. So they had no idea that I had been sentenced to death. Um, which is kind of also what happened to Ruhol Lazam, the journalist who was executed uh, last month. Um, his parents did not know he was going to be executed. Um, and like they had just been told that, do you want to see your son? Like come in and just see him and you can go. We'll, 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 like he's just in detention. And next thing they know, he's been executed and they've been called to come claim the corpse. Um, Fucking hell. So like I think my pair, uh, my mom and my grandfather knew that there was a risk that something go could go wrong and they were really trying to do things in a very like speedy manner um because like I think my family history is just so multi-layered but like I have to say this as well so they knew what could go wrong because in 1983 my uncle so the son of my grandfather uh, was executed because um, he was part of the leftist democratic groups um, and he had been executed in Evan prison and so I was technically the second generation that this was happening to but unbeknownst to me like I had no involvement in any political activity so my grandfather and my mother were like supremely aware <laughs> that the threat was imminent and real because it had happened to their family member before. Right. And I knew, and I knew what had happened to my uncle uh, some 20, 30 years ago. So I also knew that these people are not joking. Like it's, it, it is, it could happen at any moment. 
Um, so on the day when I was taken out from my cell, um, I, the, the female guard said that put on, you know, put on, put on your white chador and your, um, blindfold because, um, you've been asked to accompany your Karshanas. Karshanas is, uh, the case expert or like, you know, your case worker. And it was around like three, 4 AM dawn time. Um, I'm taking out like the air is so crispy. Like I just, I just remember like it was so the air was so crisp, um, so fresh and and chilly. And I'm just thinking, like this is it. Um, they put me in a van and they, like they drive around for what felt like eternity, but I think it was like ten minutes. Um, and then we come out and then they take me to this. Um, I mean, I don't know where it was because I had the blindfold on, but like I had to walk and and they put um, um, like shackles in my, I don't know if it's called shackles, but like <laughs> basically they, um, handcuffs. they handcuffs, that's it. Yeah. Right. So they handcuffed me and I had also um, my feet cuffed as well. Um, so I like, I was walking very slowly and. I just remember like beneath my blindfold, I saw <laughs> the officer that was walking before me. Like he had a gun on his, um, like the belt thing that, uh, they carry. Um, and like through my mind, it just passed that maybe for a second or like in a, like in, a, I don't know. Like, I just thought if I could just grab the gun and like <laughs> have this wild west, uh, climax uh, before I die because if they're gonna like execute me then I might as well fight while I'm you know going through it but then again like I was so young and it's you know I mean I only mentioned that because I want you to imagine like how young and in a way like desperate I was mm. um, like I was just thinking if they're actually going to do this like I might as well just do something I can't just walk in and allow them to like kill me you know mm. um, but then I thought like what are the chances like <laughs> me in, in handcuffs like <laughs> reaching out to his gun like okay it would it would be over in a second like it would yeah. just be very You're miserable not John Wick, and, and, you know what I mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly um so yeah so they oh it's just oh yeah it's like I feel disgusted even like thinking about that time because it just seems so surreal mm. but um I was put on my knees and I I like I I was I, I don't know I was praying for all the gods that exist out there I was crying so hysterically mm. um I don't exactly remember what was going through my mind. I just remember that I was so cold and, and just like wanted things to pause for a second because I, even though like the solitary confinement had felt like and and like hundred years, I felt like me being taken out of my cell and, and taken to that moment. Like I, I just thought, life was literally just moving too fast even though as i just mentioned the drive itself felt like eternity so like there i was going through many conflicting emotions and um you know i mean facing the potential threat of dying like is not easy so i if i struggle to put it in words it's because there isn't really a way to 
put those feelings into words. <laughs> no, I couldn't even begin to imagine what that must be like. Like literally walking to what you thought was going to be like your death, like put you on the knees. Like what? Like what happened? Obviously, they didn't kill you. Like what changed? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm here. Luckily, you know, I made it. But so uh, they put me on my knees. That's correct. And um, I still had my blindfold on, and I could hear the officers walking around. Um, so I knew that in Evan, before uh, people, many thousands had been killed on execution squads. But I didn't like. I wasn't aware whether it would be by hanging or shooting. Like I, I didn't know what the process would be like. But then I started hearing very distinct noises of like a gun being loaded and um, kind of like the prep that would lead up to someone shooting you. Um, and like for a good few minutes, like everything was complete silence. I, I could hear the sounds of the birds. Like it was just, it was so, so surreal, Jake. Um, but then suddenly, the officer got a call and he came back to me and he said, listen, we're not going to do it today. Uh, it was your lucky day, but we're going to come back to it when we have time. Um, and I just thought, are you like, is this a joke? Is there a hidden camera somewhere? Like is what is, what is the name of this? And it's nothing but a mock execution. Mm. Um, but but for them to like be go to that length to like literally make me see death before my eyes it was it was just so grotesque and that's why i will never forgive anyone who even tries to defend them because they did that to me when i was in my teens yeah and like imagine what they like what they've done to thousands of others, but actually executed them. Mm. So for me, two plus two is four. So I don't understand how some people may make a different calculation. Um, so yeah, and then they just drove me back to the cell. And for the next one week or so, I would say I was like a living dead person because I felt like my soul had been absolutely crushed. Um, and in many ways, I wish, I mean, I wished at that moment um, and the few days that followed it, in many ways, I kind of felt like I would have been grateful had they actually shot me. Um, now, I know that sounds very hypocritical, uh, but because I was genuinely so weak and, and so worn out, I just wanted things to end. Like, I wanted a SWAT team to come through or I want them to, I, I want them to like, just get over with it. You know, like I wanted it to end. That's it. Like whether it's by someone coming to rescue me or me meeting God, like I just wanted it to be over because it had dragged on for so many months and day after day, it was just continuous mental torment. Yeah. I remember, um, it's it's not comparable, but you might kind of understand this. I remember when we got out of jail in Turkey, uh, my friend, one of my codies, Phil, who I was in with, 
he said it was like watching our own funeral. And I kind of really understood what he meant. You know what I mean? Like not even on the level of you at all, but like just seeing your life destroyed while you're alive. You know what I mean? Yeah, completely. Like I did have many out of body experiences. Like I would, especially because when you have a blindfold on and you can't see anything, like you have to be able to visualize your surroundings without actually seeing them. So like you have a lot of like out of body moments where you feel like you're watching yourself from an outsider's viewpoint um, because essentially all you see is just pitch black. And sometimes you may be able, able to see beneath your blindfold, but that's, that's literally it. Um, so you have to like navigate where you're going, where you're coming from, like just, just based on all your other senses. And so I completely understand what your um, co-worker, a journalist as well, what he said about like watching your own funeral, because that's exactly what it felt like. It's like watching yourself from afar. And like, it's, it's actually a very disorienting feeling. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, honestly, I can't. Not, not. I mean, you know, there was one or two times. There was one guy in the car, like you know, he cocked his pistol and was like, "I could kill you now." You know, I just have to say, you went for my gun, like you know. But there was nothing close to what you've experienced. I don't know how, like, how you're just okay. Like, how have you dealt with all of this? Uh, well, I wasn't okay, Jake. Um, when I came back in May 2018, I pretended everything was normal. Like I pretended nothing had happened and I could have just carried on living because nobody, as I said, like no mainstream media knew about it. Um, but I had so many difficult moments. As I said, like I couldn't speak with anyone. I had so many trust issues. I ended up in hospital for four months, like as an inpatient um, because all the psychological, like I had a war literally inside my head and all of that was translating into physical manifestations where my body was not working properly. Like, as I mentioned earlier, my heart was going 300, 350 and I had three ablations where they burn, like they create soft tissue in your heart. Um, none of it helped. Like I still kept having it. Um, I would, I would collapse in my student accommodation and like I would have uh, the reception come check on me because they had been given information that like they had to knock on my door either on a suicide watch or to check if I had like died of something else or like maybe like, I don't know, like harmed myself or something like it. Things were very, very dark. Um, but then I, I kept hearing the news about Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and, and RS Amiri and like other cases coming up. And I, I realized that I don't have the power in me to stay silent anymore. I realized like in order to be able, like in order to repress your truth and, and your feelings and your experience, you need great discipline and power. And I just didn't have it in, in me. And so I went to a friend of mine, she's a journalist, works for Channel 4, and I said, Janet, this is what happened to me. Do you think I should go public with it? Um, and then, you know, and then that's kind of how it all started. And I feel like after I spoke out on what I went through, an entire weight of the world, I felt like was lifted from my chest. 
because I felt like I wasn't carrying this like incredibly painful experience with me everywhere I went. And, and also uh, I was, you know, I was helping others make sense of what they were going through too, because now, as we know, Iran has uh, arrested at least 30 um, known cases. Of course, there are plenty that we don't know as, as you know, like my case, nobody knew it when I was there. So there are at least 30 known cases of dual nationals being held in Iran. So like, I feel like having this larger than life purpose um, has made me much more focused and, and obviously motivated as well, because now I see that um, everything that you go through, however traumatizing, um, you can use it for, uh, for something uh, creative is mm -hmm. one way of looking at it, but also as a, as a form of, Uh, community building and, and being able to bond with other people who have stories of survival. So for example, I am, I have collaborated and I'm really good friend of um, Sarah Mardini. Uh, she was a Syrian refugee and her sister is like an Olympian swimmer, Yusra Mardini. Um, like we just bonded over our trauma. You know, she fled war. She fled, um, persecution and, and she swam her way to Europe like she didn't even come in a dingy she, she like literally swam um and and she's also quite well known so but like I I, I realized that if you have a source of vulnerability or, or a story that is so profound it can only make your connections and 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 like ability to empathize with others um stronger and 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 deeper really so I'm, i'm really just trying to look at the positive side of it because if we start thinking about the damage it has done like it's just so colossal that i don't even want to think about it yeah no i can understand um i know you don't have much time but can you just explain quickly like how you got out like how did you actually you know not get killed and was released and got back to the uk um yeah so that part is a bit more complicated and um <laughs> It actually doesn't get much media attention because uh, the media just wants an easy answer, which is like, oh, yeah, a U.S. diplomat came and took me out of Evan and I walked on red carpet and I just flew back in a private jet. Um, no, <laughs> it's not like that at all. It was it was uh, much more complicated than that uh, in my case. But uh, basically, in August 2016, I was released on bail pending trial Um And I, I had already had a trial, but like, as with everything in Iran, um, you had uh, retrials, you had new hearings, you could appeal your uh, verdict. Like everything is just like made to seem like they're following some official protocol, but everything is really to do with connections and who you are able to persuade into doing you a favor and whatnot. So like... Um, After I was released on bail, uh, the bail was one milliard toman, which at the time was the price of an apartment in Tehran. Um, so imagine like a flat in central London, like that was my bail, excessive. Um, I come out and it was excessive because they argued that national security um, uh, inmates are not allowed on bail. And then, you know, anyway, that, like my 
my mother was able to negotiate around it. But so long story short, um, I, I came out on bail. I was under house arrest for about a year. And in October 2017, um, I was informally told that I had been acquitted because the crimes I had committed had occurred when I was under 18. Um, now, it's not like they care if you're under 18 or over 18, but they had to make themselves look like the good guys. Um, and I remember one of the judges saying, um, we could have sentenced you to 10 years in prison or to two years in prison, which was kind of, you know, um, uh, so my death penalty was then commuted to 10 years. And after that, it was brought down to two years. So like they, they made references to them because um, my sentence had been officially commuted a few times. Um, but then he said, we didn't sentence you to prison because we realized that when you come out of prison, nobody would want to marry you because like men don't want, no, because men don't want to marry girls that have been to prison. And I was just thinking to myself, that is such bullshit. Um, but yeah, so like excuses to kind of, hey, we're the good people and we did this on goodwill and your freedom is at our discretion. So if you go out and try to be rebellious or whatsoever, like you are back in square one. And so uh, I actually, I, I filed an official complaint at the court um, after I had been acquitted um, because I, I wanted them to know like how badly I had been treated in Evan. Um, and I remember the, one of the clerks or like the, uh, secretaries, he said, I think you should withdraw the complaint for your own safety. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like good advice. <laughs> I certainly would not be, uh, I wouldn't be saying anything. I'd be like, thank you very much. See you later. <laughs> well, yeah, but at the same time, like I thought if, if they want to be like the good guys, they should also know what's happening, right? Basically, what they wanted to show you is that they don't know what's going on in Evan because the interrogations are orchestrated by the IRGC, whereas judiciary is like impartial and independent. And obviously, that's not true. But you know, that's the image they wanted to uh, give out. Um, but so anyway, so yeah, so I was acquitted October 2017. And but I was still under a travel ban, and uh, at the very end, so in February 2018, my dad was also released, also on bail, um, and the IRGC uh, basically made us an offer that we didn't have the option of refusing, which was um, they would equip us with new passports, Iranian passports, and we would be able to leave the country. Um, if we are willing to, um, basically it wasn't this straightforward, but this is what they implied essentially is that if we are willing to give up everything we have in Iran, so, uh, so our bail would be confiscated, um, and, uh, a few quite like large lands that my dad had inherited from his dad. Mm. Um, and same with my mom and obviously from my mom's side, because of my grandfather's position, like they're quite um uh they personally have a lot of personal wealth but like i don't but my mom does as well so like if my mom also gives out everything that she has um so essentially it was illegal extortion of 
uh, private wealth. And that's how they, uh, it's like, it's very transactional. So you give us money and uh, your assets and we give you your freedom. So basically just stealing all of your money that your whole family have had for a long time. And then, then you can go. Yeah, and it's and it's it's a very difficult uh, choice that many do not make, you know, because um, I do know that there was another case with an American Iranian and a Canadian Iranian couple, um, where they were told that so they were quite wealthy art collectors, and their bail was set at ten million dollars, um, and clearly they had that type of money, so the IRGC uh, deliberately targeted them. And so they were coerced into giving up their entire wealth in Iran, including the $10 million bail, in order for them to be able to leave the country, which is what they did because mm-hmm. they didn't have, you know, they couldn't say no and like risk returning back to Evan and going through all that shit that they did mm-hmm. going through. Um, uh, I mean, go through. Um, so, but I do know that there are others that are less reluctant because not everybody has, um, you know, a stable home in the UK or, you know, some people literally build their whole life in Iran. For example, Camille Ahmadi, uh, who last month um, escaped Iran uh, from the mountainous border, like by oh, literally yeah. like was, was smuggled out. Um, like for example, him, uh, he didn't want to do it because he had lived in Iran for the past 15 years. He, he had like built his whole reputation as a scholar and all his property was in Iran. He had like, he has nothing in the UK apart from having a British nationality, which he had got like two decades ago. So, but eventually he had to make the decision because he was sentenced to nine years. So it's like one way or other, the IRGC will get what they want, which is money. And um, yeah, and and they and they just know the ways to to get there. So you just basically just after all that, you got on a plane home. Um, well, yeah. So uh, for me, I was my tra- travel ban was lifted earlier than my parents, mm. um, and because of my medical condition and like there was an urgency for me to get proper. Um, needed medical advice and stuff. So they allowed me to leave earlier before my parents. Um, and I left on an emergency passport because um, it was like an emergency situation. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it was a plane back home. But with my parents, like my dad had been strictly advised to go by land because they had negotiated with the people in the Cerro border to like allow him out. Um so like it's it's very shady, you know. This this is like why I think when it comes to negotiating with Iran or like anything to do with future agreements, like you need to take into consideration that it is not a normal government. Like you have a multi-layered um, regime that essentially has a deep state. It has a facade. It has like these so-called diplomats that are mouthpieces to something that is uh, actually much deeper and like you can't see it because it's not in in out in your plain sight um but yeah as i said some people don't want to believe it and others deliberately ignore it yeah um I, I like i can't believe how strong you are considering all of this happened 
Just just remind me, how long were you inside in the end? Like, how long did all this last in prison? So I was in prison for eight months and under house arrest for a year. In total, though, listen, I need to put it out there because I know you might just be like, oh, eight months, that's doable. No, this whole saga lasted for four years. That's four years of my life I'm never getting back. And at the prime of my youth, from 19 till 23. So, like, I don't want anyone coming to me and saying eight months is nothing. Like, don't make a big deal out of it. Actually, it was life-changing and not in a good way. Yeah, I don't think anyone is going to be saying, oh, God, only eight months in one of the worst prisons on earth. Like, you know, like eight minutes is too much, um, especially when you're completely innocent. What, um, where, where can people find you if they want to, like, you know, see what you're doing on social media and follow your work and that? Um, so if you want to follow me on social media, I am on Twitter at I am Anna Diamond. Anna is written with one N, so A-N-A Diamond. Um, and it's the same account name on Instagram as well. Okay, Anna, thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. That was Anna Diamond speaking about the horrific situation when she was sent to Evin Prison in Iran for doing absolutely fuck all. Um, I think it's important to tell these stories. Recently, there's been uh, people in the news that have been arrested, released, captured, all sorts of stuff happening in uh, totalitarian regimes like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, all over the world. I think it's important to shine a light on these situations because, as we said in the episode, a lot of people can kind of detach the uh, human element of such horrible circumstances. Uh, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. There's loads there on the Patreon. Uh, bonus episodes, at least two a month. Extras like, I've completely forgotten what else is on there. Um, there's sneak peeks to the new Armenia documentary like on there already. There's stuff that's already out on there. Narrated articles, Q&As. There's a whole uh, series called Too Cool for J School. Basically, I mean, the name's a joke, but the, the, the concept isn't basically we're saying like, if you want to learn about stuff to do with journalism, you can do so with this series. There's no need to uh, spend all your money on some kind of bullshit course. You can just get it on uh, patreon.com slash popular front. If you are um, <laughs> a Bitcoin millionaire or something like that, you can support us at popularfront.co slash support. Our Bitcoin address is there. Uh, PayPal, all sorts. You can do that. Check us out. Uh, thank you to our sponsors. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Thank you very much. Uh, the episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. Uh, there's one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, P-R-O-P-A-G-A-D-O-P-O-L-I-S. They're an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com and use the code POPULARFRONT10 for a discount, 10% off, obviously. 
uh, yeah, as I said, if you want to support us, the best way to do it is on the Patreon, patreon.com slash popular front. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube, youtube.com slash popular front. We've got the Armenia documentary, uh, the Artsat, Karabakh, whatever you want to call it. The documentary from the front lines, looking at the whole situation. That will be coming out by the end of February, uh, I hope. I, I, we, we're, on, we're on track, but making documentaries there's a lot of fucking work to it but yeah I'm, I'm thinking it's gonna it's you know it's gonna be be done by the end of february i'm editing it myself so it's it's a lot of work to do all this and popular front as well but anyway i'm not complaining hopefully by the end of february follow us on uh, instagram at popular.front twitter at popularfrontco uh, you can check me out, jakehanrahan.com, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. All my stuff is there on social medias, jake underscore hanrahan. Um, yeah, check us out on uh, all the platforms. Thank you very much to the high tier Patreons. Thank you because without all you lot, honestly, this would fall to bits. Uh, thank you to Dallas Dunn, MJ, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, C. O'Donnell, Adam H., Ryan Barbadillo, Damian Boyd, Larson8669, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamond Steen, Jacob, uh, Michael O'Connor, Taylor Kidd, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froes, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Helen Degenerate, <laughs> Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano. That is fucking good, that. Helen Degenerate. <laughs> like Degenerous, anyway. Degenerate Zero Alpha, Jojo Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Noir Is, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Surushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Donham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvenek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Moritz Zumwall, and Kay Hardy Roberts. Thank you all so much. Definitely appreciate it. Uh, music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black check out his music at samblackpf.com